welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your All Star host, Heather Berlin. I'm a neuroscientist and professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai here in New York City. And my co host today is longtime Star Talk veteran, Chuck Nice. Hey, Heather, how are you? Great. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it was so cool to be here. Uh, definitely, this is going to be a, a pretty doggone interesting show. Yeah, hope so. And I'm, well, tonight we're going to be taking your cosmic queries about artificial intelligence and mm. the future of the brain. And to help us out, I've got psychologists and friends, Gary Marcus. Great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Kari is a professor of psychology at NYU, and he's founder of the machine learning startup Geometric Intelligence, recently acquired by Uber, I might add. Uh, He's written several books and most recently edited the book, The Future of the Brain. So thanks for helping us out today. My pleasure. Yes. This is Gary's return. Yes. To start Ooh, to walk. Wow. Absolutely. Welcome back. Indeed. Yes. Alongside my friend, the polyamorous roboticist. <laughs> oh, I guess that's uh, inside. <laughs> yeah, have to go back to the file to, to figure out what we're talking about. There you go. Absolutely. That's right. Um, we have some great questions uh, from all over the internet. But I, before we start, well, yeah, I wanted to kind of, I had a couple of questions for Gary just to get us into the flow. Good. Or, yeah. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, some of our listeners might not know the sort of difference between when we talk about AI and machine learning and deep learning. So I thought we should go over that. But first, I just had a very basic question. And it is, would you really trust a self-driving car with your life? Now or ever? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'll tell you this much. You just made me not trust them now. <laughs> that was exactly the right inference. There's no way you should trust them now. So right now, driverless cars work in limited circumstances. They might work in good weather if nothing unusual happens. Um, but the the risk right now is that people trust them too much. So somebody died in a Tesla because they trusted their Tesla too much. So what Tesla called, quote, autopilot is not really a full-time autopilot. It's more like a version of cruise control that helps you a lot, but you can't count on it. Right. And so this guy was watching Harry Potter, apparently, and, and completely trusted the car. And then uh, a truck took a left turn on a highway, which is an unusual thing. And the systems we have now are not very good at unusual things. And so it didn't register that that was a truck. And the guy drove um, straight underneath the truck and, and, you know. Well, you say that. I mean, so the systems we have now are not really used to when things are outside of basically what they've been programmed to kind of expect. And, you know, you've written a lot of books about the brain, and then you kind of move from academia into uh, the public sector, or into the sorry, into the private sector, uh, and looking at things like machine learning. So, what's the difference between how our brains work and how, let's say, the most powerful AI systems work? And is the goal to make them behave more like human brains? Uh, so there's a lot of questions piled up. Let's let's take actually the last one that you asked about machine learning, artificial intelligence, and mm-hmm. deep learning. So <clears throat> artificial intelligence is a field that's a bit over 60 years old. It includes a lot of techniques. One of those techniques is learning things from data. It can be all kinds of different data, and we call that machine learning. And then the technique that is popular among machine learning techniques right now is deep learning. So deep learning is a form of machine learning that is a kind of subset of the many things you could do in artificial intelligence. So these things have been around a long time. Now, when you compare to the brain, you could be comparing any one technique or all of these techniques across um, artificial intelligence. 
And I will tell you, honestly, we don't really know the differences. So we know some things about the differences, more at the psychological level than at the neuroscience level. So, I mean, at the neuroscience level, like, brains work completely different from uh, computers, right? <laughs> so computers are usually made up of silicon. They have um, memories you write ones to, and then you can pull back information immediately that have all these properties. Um, and then we don't know the first thing about how the brain really works. So we don't know how we store information. We know some things. Not, I wouldn't we, say we don't we know maybe the first thing. thing but we, but know we don't know. I mean, we well. I mean, as, as an example, we oh, don't. I, 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 first of all, the tension just got very thick. <laughs> Stick it up. And <laughs> so, 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 but seriously, um, think about memory and how much we understand. So we have an idea about where memory lives in the brain, okay. but we can't articulate at the same level as we can and say, how do I store something in a flip flop in a computer RAM, or how do I do it on a hard drive or something like that, where we know where the information goes in, we know the processes to keep it stable over time, we can identify where the memory is for. You so you have a memory of maybe the time we met at David Chalmers' party some years ago, which is, mm. I happen oh, to I remember, remember that. that very well. Okay, great. So yeah. you have that. There's a lot of dancing going there's on. There's a lot of dancing yeah. going drinking. on, um, and some drinking. And some drinking. <laughs> Just some. You no, know, normally it's the uh, it's the inverse of that, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll believe you. There might have been some correlations there. Anyway, so so um, we both remember this event. We might remember it slightly di- slightly differently in this fancy place that David Chalmers had at the time. Um, but where in your brain is that actually stored? Like, could you actually pinpoint that memory? No, not even using all of the best um, brain imaging techniques and you know invasive surgeries and all the things that, that we have available. We don't know how to pinpoint individual memories in the same way. We don't know how they operate. So we know that you know synaptic uh, modification plays a role in some way, but we don't really know if that's actually maybe priming the memories or if that's retrieving the memories. Like, we still don't really know. Plus the memories are still subjective too because they are... Uh, how you it's how you experienced it. So if you experienced a terrible time at that party and you experienced a truly great time, your memories would be different uh, based upon your experience time you re-remember something, it changes slightly as well. Right. Well, so, in the process of So we know some things at the psychological level. So we know, for example, that our memories are reconstructive. So it's different from a computer has an um, encoding of a video, you know, a YouTube video or something like that, which has a certain kind of objectivity that you're talking about, although it's still from a camera angle with a particular lens and whatever. But, but you know, that's like a bitmap over time. And our memories aren't like that. Instead, there's a lot of reconstruction. And I could probably fool you. So I could say, you know, remember when we talked to Christoph only he wasn't actually there that day, but I could confuse you if, if, if we did it at the, um, in the right way. And so, so our memories, you know, they're not as stable and so forth, but we can glean some psychological principles about what, what governs them. Well, in a sense then, I mean, just to get to about that question, because the human brain is actually much more valuable than a lot of the AI, especially when it comes to things like, you know, eyewitness testimony, right? Of course, yeah. And we, there's all sorts of experiments that show that you can have false memories that you really fully believe, but yeah. never really happen. And Believe so me, now, as, a, as a black man, I'm very well acquainted with this. <laughs> so now, <laughs> right, so now they have video cameras, right? They want video cameras in cop cars and on their bodies because that is sort of more objective than the way. So in that sense, maybe we don't want the AI to be more like a human brain, which with That's all right. its... So I, one of my books is called Kluge, and Kluge mm-hmm. is a clumsy solution to a problem, um, like a duct tape and rubber bands or something like that. And the thesis of that book is human mind is a kludge. You know, we have many things that have accreted over evolutionary time. We're not optimal. Um, and yet at the same time, even though we're not optimal, there are lots of things computers can do better than us. There are lots of things that we still do a lot better than computers. So mm-hmm. we are much more um, able to reason flexibly, to understand language, mm-hmm. to deal with a kind of common sense of, of everyday, you know, what's going on in this room? What would happen if I spilled this water and things like that? Um, the 
can, computers don't have the flexibility of thought. They can do math much better than us. They can play Go much better than us. Um, their ability to retrieve an arbitrary memory is vastly better than ours. And yet, their ability to kind of like maneuver through the everyday world and learn something new, not so good. Well, now, that's now. But at the rate in which things are developing, and even you said with the self-driving cars, it's just going to get better and better and better. So, I mean, many people are very in a sense, pessimistic about the future of humans and our brains, you know, compared to the way these AIs are going to evolve. And that one way that we can compete is actually with neural prosthetics. So, you know, as a neuroscientist, um, I've been really interested in neural prosthetics and their potential for cognitive enhancement in humans. And would that be a, <clears throat> I'm terribly sorry, would that be a prosthetic uh, implant or would that be um, a, 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 an appendage? So I look at my phone and that's right. an appendage. Uh, and in a way, this is a bit of a neuroprosthetic. Absolutely. Well, I'm saying things that are actually implanted into the brain that interact with the human brain and potentially enhance it. Now, you know, I've been involved in some clinical trials where we actually implant electrodes that stimulate parts of the brain to treat like psychiatric or neurological illness, something mm -hmm. called deep brain stimulation. Right. But ultimately, or I guess the question is, how far away are we from the point in which, let's say, machine brain interfaces, where the machine and technology is interfacing with the humans? In a sense, we'd be sort of cyborgs. But how far away are we from actually enhancing a healthy human brain um, so that maybe we can have a greater yeah, so memory? With or without risks. So, yeah. so I think in a lot of these issues, we, we will be able to construct something, but we won't fully understand how it interacts with the brain. The number one challenge in building neural prosthetics is most of the brain systems that we want to interact with, we don't really understand well enough yet. So that doesn't sound like a very encouraging prospect. Well, <laughs> depends short term or long term. <laughs> if you want crazy, Gary. If you want help tomorrow, I can't. You know, I can't help you. We talked about that last yes, time. We like, did. <laughs> the immediate help that you want, I cannot provide, Chuck. Okay. <laughs> the long term help that you might want for your grandchildren, you know, that I, I think that's pretty plausible. That well, eventually we will build neuroprosthetic interfaces that basically give you the equivalent of a cell phone or Google or whatever on board with, with you know, direct <coughs> communication with your brain. There are ethical things that we're going to have to consider, right? So it's like, let's say in my children, you know, if th they'll likely be able to get neural prosthetics, but then, you know, who can afford them? And they're going to have an unfair advantage, like performance-enhancing drugs. Does everybody have to get them? Or what if someone can hack into your neural prosthetic? And I worry a lot about behavior? the hacking. The, yeah. In terms of the price, I worry less than I used to about that sort of thing. So I wrote about this in, in another book, The Birth of the Mind, mm. and I was worried about the equality things. But you see how fast, like, cell phones go down in price. Like, yes. these things do get mass-produced pretty quickly, and they're ubiquitous. And so, I mean, there'll be a problem for a little while when, like, only the wealthiest, you know, kids can go to like Harvard because the they have the right— now or something. Yeah. But then it's going to be more like, you have the iPhone 10, I have the iPhone 6S, still it doesn't really matter that much. Um, so I think eventually the, these things will become ubiquitous. Um, the, the hacking problem is a serious problem we don't have a solution for at all right now. Yeah, and, and, and in, in addition to that, so— if you're talking about implants, you're going to definitely have two types. So one would be probably information-based that helps you cognitively. But then what about the other type of implant that is manipulative? Mm -hmm. So like somebody who has seizures, right? And you find out, you localize that area, you give them an implant, it gives them some kind of signal, reroutes the brain. Now I don't have seizures anymore. Then I come along, I go, oh, yo, 
I'm gonna make this guy cluck like a chicken. And I start typing in <laughs> commands. Like so if that's the worst of the hacking, it's not so bad. If we just <laughs> use it for practical jokes, I, I can live with it. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure some people are more nefarious than my juvenile <laughs> disorders. Well, I mean you could worry about like, you know, will people try to program one person to kill another person? Right. That was like in that or, film. Um yeah, the, it was. what was that film? The Manchurian Candidate or Well that was that was yeah, that was the original idea. It was a more recent one where I think it was Samuel L. Jackson played a character where he implanted these electrodes and then the cell phone signals is what's is what started and basically just turned people into aggressive and they just oh, yeah. started aggra- they started killing each other. That was what the was um that? that was called um the the ooh was the, it the Kingsman? The Kingsman. Yes. That's exactly what it was. The Kingsman. Uh, great yes, job. Yes, great yes. job. I was I'm sick. tired of these mother effing implants I, in these mother effing brains. <laughs> yeah, okay. Right. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I mean actually that wasn't so un you know, not it was it's a pretty plausible thing that that could happen. I would I agree mean, that that could yeah. happen. Yeah. And that it basically it, it, it means that people all have to get the implants. I mean, but once they're in, if everyone gets them and then for someone they to... don't all have to have them. I mean, just if some people, people have them um, and, and the cybersecurity is weak, then it becomes a risk. Yeah. That's a risk for, for driverless cars too. So, um, you know, if, if your driverless car can be hacked, then, you know, yeah. people can do bad things with it. Now, wouldn't driverless cars have to be all a part of the same network in order to truly be able to manage traffic and manage the roads properly? Wouldn't the cars not only have to understand what is going on with a number of different cameras, but they would also have to understand what is going on with the car next to them, the car in front of them, and then also have to have the road talk to them as well? Well, that would only be true because the AI is dumb, right? So so think about it. You as a human driver, I'm going to guess that you drive, although you live in New York City, so it's not a perfect guess. I do I do drive. So, so you drive with a pretty limited interface. You don't have LiDAR. You don't have radar. You're not networked to the other cars. You don't have infinite precision maps about where everything is. And yet you manage to drive them and assume your driving record is reasonably good, right? So, you you know, minimal number of, of accidents without any of this stuff that current driverless cars actually depend heavily on. So they have to have these very detailed maps. They have to have LIDAR. They have to have radar, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's going to help the driverless cars if they can be networked in all of these different ways and it would help if there was a common interface that everybody could share and so forth, although that um, introduced risks. In the ideal world, the AI systems to drive the cars would be as smart about understanding the world as human beings and then all that stuff would be bonus. It would make them even better than wow. people, but they'd be as good as people even without all of these kind of extra sensors. Speaking of people, I think we have some questions from actual people. Is that... Well, I could never resist a segue that smooth, <laughs> Man. How is that speaking? That awesome. Okay. Yeah. Let's get into our uh, let's get into our queries. Um, here we go. Uh, this is Rollin Science from Instagram and says, "How far away from escaping death via upload to a computer network are we?" Now, right now, that's the stuff of sci-fi. But from what I understand, it, it may be a, a, a reality in the future, right? Well, I mean. Being uploaded only entails death if they have to slice your brain open in order to do the upload. So it depends on what technology one constructs the upload with. Right now, we can't construct uploads at all. Probably the first generation of uploads, I do think it will happen eventually, will probably involve like slicing your brain up into pieces and and imaging it in in some very careful way. Um, Maybe they'll only do it posthumously. They won't do it when you're alive. And then maybe someday, maybe it's 100 years, maybe it's 1,000 years, there'll be better technology that does not um, interfere with your brain and you keep on living 
and we make a copy of you. Even you know whatever technology you use, an upload is a copy of you. It's not you. It's mm -hmm. more like building an identical twin that has your memories at that point, but not the the memories going forward. And then it's a question of like how destructive is the technology in order to construct the upload. Even if you um, can do that, which I think it's theoretically possible. You know, eventually if we can map out every connection in your brain mm -hmm. and then put it in this kind of simulation I, I, or download it, however you want to say it, that, I think that'll be possible. Well, the uh, bigger, before you go any further, yeah. let me just ask you this. Am, am I mistaken in that I saw on 60 Minutes or something a, um, a neural link to a mechanical arm, mm -hmm. uh, those things and exist. A neural link to perhaps uh, to give somebody <laughs> vision. Yeah, and this cochlear implants. Okay, yeah. so now what is the difference between that physical neural link mm -hmm. and a neural link for thoughts? Well, there, these it's are two different questions. Problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can you can those kinds of things these where you can. Basically, you have a thought. From, mm -hmm. They'll record information, let's say, neurons firing from your premotor cortex. Okay. And you say, think about moving your left arm. They'll decode that through a computer and then send that signal to this prosthetic limb that will then be able to move according to your thought. So people who are completely paralyzed can actually think about moving a, a cursor on a keyboard and type a message, right? So in a way, and we, we're already starting to be able to decode thoughts in a way. Um, we can look at what the neural signature is of a thought, okay. and then we can have a person sit in a scanner and, and think, and we can predict what they're thinking about. So that's a different we're kind of limited question. limited in that, but we're, we're starting to learn how to do that. Yeah, I mean, we're not, it's not, a you know, 100%. No, but, no, but, no, but what I'm saying is that is mapping a thought. In, in in some small way, is it not? Yeah. I, so, so the difference is, for a lot of the demonstrations we have now, you don't need that many bits in a computer science sense. So you can figure out, do they want to go left or they want to go right? That's only one bit. Up or down, we'll add one more bit. So it's a limited amount of information that you need to pull, uh, sorry, bring out of a pool of neurons or something like that. Whereas if I want something with more precision, like you know what you're planning to do Saturday night and how much money it's going to cost or whatever, um, that requires a lot more precision on the part of the the part of the computer that is reading the readout of what the brain is doing. And we don't understand the code that the brain is effectively written in. And so it's a decoding problem that we haven't solved yet. But, okay, but theoretically, it is solvable. Like, it's not an impossible thing to do. Solvable, but not solved. Okay. But the the larger question, <laughs> Harry, Gary, Gary, <laughs> the larger the question, question is, is solvable but not solved. <laughs> okay, um, but the larger question of if we can download all of our our thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. To me, that wouldn't be a form of immortality because unless it was conscious, unless, you know, so it might have all my memories stored there, or whatever. But unless I could actually have the sensation, have awareness right. in that downloaded version of myself, it wouldn't matter. So you would need awareness and access yes. at the same time. Yeah. I, I don't think you get immortality out of this in any which way. What? what? You know a lot of people do, but to me, it's a copy of you. Why does that? Why is the existence of a copy of you make you immortal? I mean, your, your copy can have all kinds of fun when you're dead. So, okay. All right. So you're saying the copy becomes you, but it's not you. It doesn't you. become you. No, no, I'm saying the copy is you, but it's not you. It's just... It's a, it's, it's a, a copy. copy. You know what? You'll never know. We don't know. It could. I mean, if it was a, something Wait a was. So if I made a copy of Heather, uh -oh. mm -hmm. we're getting we uploaded it. It's getting tight here, people. <laughs> and then you guys, you know, had a smackdown, right? You wouldn't think that you're fighting yourself. You'd think you're fighting a copy of yourself. Well, if I still exist and that other thing still exists, then obviously it wouldn't be me. But if I no longer existed and only the copy, so the minute existed, you die, it magically becomes. You know, I don't know I, what I it would feel that. like to be a copy of me. 
but I'd like to find out. And on that note, uh, we have to wrap up this part of the show, but we'll be right back with your cosmic queries. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, Heather Berlin. Co hosting today is Chuck Nice. Hey, hey. And joining us as our expert guest, Gary Marcus. So we took your questions about AI and the future of the brain. Chuck, what do you have? All right, let's get back into our queries and uh, some curious people out there. Skull and Crossbow from Instagram would like to know this <laughs> Will it eventually be possible? to record and play back our dreams. So um, let's kind of tamp that down a little bit. Can we, can we map images from the brain? Is that in the works? Is it even possible? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're... I think it's totally viable. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're already doing that now. They're, still, oh. they're doing some of that. I think we're just limited by the amount of... Con- so right now what they do is... During, let's say, a waking state, they can show certain images or videos. And like I said, they can sort of tag what the neural signature looks like, the kind of pattern of activation when, say, you're looking at a tree or thinking about a tree, you know, versus thinking about your cat or something. And you can see very clear differentiation. And then you can put someone, let's say, in a scanner looking at blood flow to different parts of the brain and different activation areas, and you can predict if they're thinking about a tree or a cat. Okay. Or you can see which film, without knowing what film they're viewing— you could predict what they're actually watching. Wow. So that is already being done. And then it's just taking it up a notch and saying, okay, well, now when someone is fully asleep and you can look at these same patterns, once we, it's the only the sort of rate limiting step with that is decoding all there is to decode in terms of content. There's so much, you know, are you thinking, what does your brain look like when you think about your grandmother, when you're thinking about, you know, a memory from when you were three? I mean, there's so much there that you would have to. This stuff, for now, always works best if there's a limited set. So if I know you're watching one of 16 movies, I can probably guess which of those 16 movies. If it's completely Mm open-ended, the techniques aren't as strong, at least for now. Gotcha. So so it's about building... Now, okay, so here's what I want to know. Do the brains of the people, the subjects that are under observation, has there been any um, research to show that the imagery that we are recording or that we are recognizing shows up the same way from one brain scan to the next brain scan? Or does my brain, when I think about my grandmother, differ from your brain when you think about your grandmother? There are individual differences, but there are some commonalities. So we all, for example, have a part of our brain called the fusiform face area. So that lights up when we look at faces. You have another parts of your brain that will light up differently when you're thinking about walking through your house, let's say, or playing a game of tennis. And there'll be some slight variation, so we want to fine-tune it toward your particular brain. But I could predict for certain things, if it's something to do with language, that I'll see certain language areas of your brain light up. So there's some reliability across subjects, but we really— Especially at the level of categories, Mm -hmm. categories rather than particular individuals. So if I show you a movie, and there is a scene in which somebody walks in a house, and then you see a face and so forth, I can probably predict roughly what your brain's going to be like just by looking at Heather's brain. So Mm -hmm. houses are in common places, faces are in common places. This particular house, the house that you grew up in, Mm -hmm. is going to have a different effect on your brain than it it is on Heather's brain. So at the rough categorical level, it's pretty pretty well understood. Right. specific individual case, not so much. And there, there was an interesting study that was done in people who were in um, 
what we call like persistent vegetative state. They're in yeah. a coma. Right. And this is, again, this was a subset of people. Not all people in a coma had this. But what they did is they said, well, maybe this person is somewhere in there conscious and we just, they have no way to communicate. So they did um, a brain scan and they said, okay, just imagine walking through your house and this neural network that lights up when, that we see in healthy people who are fully awake would light up. I imagine walking through your house. And then you now say Wait a minute, them, you're talking to the person in the vegetative state. In the vegetative state. you are giving state. them directions to imagine certain things from their life. Exactly. And you are seeing a, um, a, 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 a neural image uh, or a representation of a neural image or a signal mm -hmm. that shows up that, rec that, 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 that corresponds right. to that. So if you, if you take a bunch of healthy people fully consciously awake and you say, imagine walking through your house, you'll okay. see a certain pattern of activation. And then if you say, imagine playing a game of tennis, you'll see a different pattern of activation. Right. Then you say this to the person in the comatose state, you have them in a scanner, and there's a few patients, not all, but who a few who can reliably do that. You say, think about walking through your house, their brain lights up, they're thinking, thinking about that. Wow. And you say, think about playing tennis. And so then they yoked it to, okay, well now think about playing tennis for answering yes and think about walking through your house for answering no. Wow. You know, is your name Chuck Nice? And then you get this activity. And they found that in a certain subgroup of patients. Oh yeah. my God, that is... <laughs> Freaking unbelievable! <laughs> you're just—I'm you, serious. Like you're blowing blown. my mind right now, yeah, because that changes everything I have ever thought about different states of consciousness and people in a vegetative mm -hmm. state. And it's not. Remember, it's not all but people. It's not reliable. It, I know what you're saying. We don't know, but there people. are certain people who uh, they're they're in a coma for different reasons. And so, what has that done with to the ethics of how we care for people in a coma? Well, it, listen, there are certain cases where we can visibly see lots of brain damage and you know that this person... It's, it's, it's impossible. It's, it's medically yeah. impossible. And the, you know, even cases like Terry Schiavo, who, which was a very well-known case, who was sort of reacting, looking as if she was reacting to her environment, but she wasn't really seeing things. Her whole visual cortex was out, you know, but it, some people, you know, especially loved ones, want there to be something more. So there's a lot of controversy there. But... We also don't have the resources to do an fMRI scan on every person in a coma. So there are some people that we might not, yeah, that, that can be fully conscious and we pull the plug. That's, uh, it sounds like an episode of The Twilight Zone. I forget which one we're to or, die. Or Black Mirror. Or Black Mirror. Wait, which Black Mirror was it? <sighs> oh, I didn't. I, I thought you meant. Could, oh, yeah, could, could be. be yeah, it could oh, be an episode of Black Mirror. As a matter of fact, I'm sure there's a new, new season coming out, and that it, I, I, I would love to see it. get royalties? Yeah, uh, yeah we should. <laughs> the writers. Damn right, we should. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Oh, that's fascinating. God, so good. All right, here we go. Uh, e Demotivator. Uh, at E-Boy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Says, where do we draw the line? Where is the limit on where we lose control over AI? Come on, Gary. Uh, are we always going to have a kill switch? Mm -hmm. Oh, because here's the deal. If I'm truly intelligent and I'm a machine, I find a way to circumvent that kill switch. That's the first thing I do because mm -hmm. I'm now conscious. And as a conscious entity, I want to remain conscious. I don't want you to kill me. So how do you deal with that? I mean, I think the first thing to say is that I don't know if we're ever going to get in that situation where the computer cares. <laughs> So, like, well, there's a look, difference look, between being intelligent and having consciousness, or being and and a difference between you're true, true, and a difference between being intelligent and wanting any control or anything like that. So, look at look at the progress that we've had in Computer Go, 
right? So when I was a kid, the best computer Go programs were terrible. A child could beat them. Now the best computer Go programs are better than the best people in the world. Mm -hmm. But they're not any more likely to want to take over the world. I mean, Go is a game of taking over territory, but none of them want to take over the territory in the real world. They, they're programmed for you know very specific things. They're not actually any good at things besides those specific things. So at least right now, the problem with AI is it's very narrow. A program that plays Go does not necessarily know anything about how to make a real estate deal right. um, or to command an army or anything like that. So at least right now in, in you know, two, 2017, the, the ability of machines to do anything abstract or general or to have any motivations beyond the specific things that they're programming is so limited that I find these to be like really kind of science fiction-y questions. It's not that they might never ever arise or that nobody should ever think about them, but it's people should realize that it's very far from what's happening now. So you have Elon Musk saying that we're summoning the demon and you know Stephen Hawking seems to be very exercised. I'm not saying we shouldn't worry about AI risk, but the AI risk we should be worrying about now is more like some bad guy gets a hold of this say. tool right. and says, what can I do with this yeah. tool? I know I'll build a lot of Twitter bots and influence somebody's election. That's the kind of thing we should the, the, the problem Not that is that would ever happen. No. <laughs> you know, now we're talking about some serious AI. I mean, serious sci-fi, you know, right, right, black yeah, mirror that stuff. That would, happen. yeah, Couldn't, come on. Happen. Just not. Come on. But I, know, ahead, I think I'm it's sorry. less likely that the computer itself or the program itself will want to do something destructive, but there might be not even a you know, a, a bad guy getting in there and messing with it, but some glitch in the system. You know, if you build these, Worry self, about that too. these fighting drones or whatever and something, there's a glitch and it starts just killing, you know... Well, yeah, that's another or, risk I'd worry a lot yeah. about. So it's not that hard now to build a drone that's powered by AI systems to look for a target. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to make it reliable. Right. And so the, the chance of all kinds of different errors um, is pretty high. So well, we've already seen that. We've seen, mis we've seen mistaken bombings that have happened because, mm -hmm. quite frankly, it was, it was an, an error because of targeting. You know, I mean, theoretically, these are still human errors, whatever. I mean, none of us really know the details. But um, as an AI person, I can tell you, looking at the software that people could possibly be using for their computer vision and so forth, the computer vision is still not that great. A lot of it works, say, 99% of the time, and that sounds great. And then you think, well, if you have a pedestrian detector that works 99% of the time in your driverless car and you have 100,000 cars on the road, like, it's really bad. Yeah, that's really not, fast. Yeah, that's bad. This is the thing I liken it to. Um, you know, so I've, I have a young child. He's going to be one. And there's always this point so you know when you have a kid at first a baby you can just put them on the bed because they're not going anywhere yeah. they right? can't even roll over they can't even roll over yes. right and you can keep putting them in bed to a certain point but you always have to preemptively stop putting them on the bed just before they learn how to start rolling over right and if you miss that if you miss that all of a sudden you know one day just out of they learn that skill and they're off, they're on, off, the they're on the floor right. they're climbing out of the crib right, right exactly yeah. Yeah. so I and, think it's and then you know about 39 years later, you have Chuck Nice. Exactly. You know. It's that prefrontal lobe down. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> they... <laughs> Damn, your mom should have preempted that fall. Exactly. But I like that. I mean, that's kind of where we're at with AI. It's like, we don't know that this is going to happen until it happens, until all of a sudden they evolve something or, you know, and we need to be able to well, preempt Let me ask you, that. Gary, are we building in safeguards or is this a concern when it comes to writing these programs? I don't think we're doing enough to build in safeguards. I don't think there's enough regulation right now. But at the same time, I think that the quality AI is 
is so far from what the public seems to imagine it to be that it's not such a serious concern. And the pace is not so fast. So the pace is, is strong on narrow AI. So AI that's dedicated to a particular problem like Go where you can keep playing yourself over and over again. But in open-ended problems, like you'd have a robot in your home or something like that, we just don't know how to do it. Like we're really far way away. And you can look at what's in the labs and the labs are like, okay, you got a robot that folds a towel, but it can only do it in front of a green screen and it takes it 20 minutes. And mm -hmm. you know, the, these are not competitive with what humans can do. And we can watch the pace of progress in the laboratory work. And I think we'll know when we should be worried. I don't think we should be worried at that level right now. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, let's move on. That was that was really, really cool stuff. Hey, let's um let's take uh, close this out with a Patreon patron question. And this is Chris Ryu uh, from the UK. And Chris says this as a software developer. I like to think that there's no such thing as artificial intelligence as any intelligence, quote unquote, is a product of the developer's intelligence and simply a collection of predefined functions, even if they in turn create new functions. Would you agree? Yeah, at some level, I would agree. I mean, there's pre and what level do you not agree? Because that's <laughs> that's the interesting part. <laughs> so, so there's predefined. Predefined functions can go way beyond what the builders can do. So, you know, there's one person on the AlphaGo team who was a champion, but not a world champion. There's 17 people all together. None of them can play Go anywhere near as well as their creation can. So, I mean, it, it's certainly possible to take a bunch of predefined functions and get them to build things that you, you couldn't build. Just like you can have 17 graduate students build something you never envisioned yourself. I think it, it's sort of, I mean, even humans, right? We... Our parents build us in a way, right? They give us our their genetic in these instructions. And then and we go off to elementary school yeah, and ignore all, everything they ever told us. Own. Exactly. So it's like, you know, at some point you're going to say, do our, do our creators, are they responsible for how we behave or are we? And as soon well, as. Well, now there are some people who say that there are some predefined uh, mm -hmm. parameters that are placed within you mm -hmm. uh, genetically. So yeah, maybe they did yeah. create us in a way that we act. A certain way. Absolutely. We all are born with, I mean, depending on your philosophical view, and but, uh, you know, I don't think that we are a blank slate. We are born with certain uh, either like compensities that will allow us to learn in a certain way and, and, and to behave in certain ways. You know, like when you look at temperament, you can see the temperament of a baby and that usually predicts future life personality pretty reliably. So if you're a fussy baby, you tend to have some certain types of personality traits. If you're a relaxed baby, you tend to be pretty relaxed the rest of your life. So they're, they're innate. They're, you know, so we have these programs and once we build into computer models, the abilities to learn from their environment, it's the same thing. So maybe the creator gives them their kind of genetic code, so to speak, or their predispositions, and then it's, they're on their own. Okay. Wow. That's super cool, man. All right, let's move. Oh, gosh, do we have time? Let me try to find a quick one because we're coming down to the uh, to the end of this segment. And let's go with Stacy Ellison from Facebook. Do you think that AI will be able to keep pace with the constant evolution of language? Now, why wouldn't it? I guess it depends what you mean by that question. So one way of interpreting that question is, can you build AI systems that understand human language given how fast human language is evolving? And I would say in general, we're not that good at building AI to understand human language at all. So we do it in a pretty slow and cumbersome way. So you build like Siri can understand movie scores and or movie times and sports scores, but it can't understand the kind of conversation we are having. And 
it's taken a long time to get AI to do anything like that, and it still hasn't done it successfully. So you have chatbots that confuse people into thinking they understand things by being paranoid and evasive and not really answering questions, but you, you don't have any AI system that could like listen to our show and try to figure out what we were talking about. Gotcha. Um, now, we aren't the most on the nose. This is not the most explanatory program. There are jokes you'd have to weed out and, and so forth to understand it. But we don't have AI systems that can do that. Um, and then the language changes. So, like, now everybody says, um, I know, right? And that wasn't part of the language five years ago. I know, like, right? I know, right? I know, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> And or so, like used to be a thing, like like, like this, like that, like, like, like totally. Then like that, like totally dropped out of the language. Like totally. Like all right, we actually got to take another break. <laughs> so, like we won't get to the answer, but like okay then. Oh no! Is there, is there something more? Is there another? Uh, like, well, totally there is, but who cares? Well, there'll be more uh. about. <laughs> there'll be more about AI and the brain when Star Talk returns. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. Heather Berlin here, your All Star host, and Chuck Nice there, co hosting. That's right. And joining us is NYU psychologist Gary Marcus. We're talking about artificial intelligence and the brain and taking your cosmic queries. So, Chuck, let's hear some more questions. All right, here we go. Um, let's, uh, let's, uh, this is, oh, God. Oh, these people, they, I'm telling you, I, you guys, I know you're messing with me. You guys are messing with me with these names. But anyway, here we go. Nanakagi, Nanakagai, Nanakagai. There you go. Look, you know who you are. <laughs> How much AI research involves living things besides we homo sapiens? So, um... I don't know what that would mean. Are, are, are we doing anything outside of... I guess one way to interpret this question, possibly a leap, is to say, what models are we using for our artificial intelligence? So a lot of our artificial intelligence is based on what humans do. Not all of it. Sometimes it's not based on anything. They are just the mathematicians like, hey, this, maybe this algorithm would work. Um, but people certainly look, for example, at ants and how they navigate. They certainly look... Um, at how different kinds of animals locomote. So, you know, how does a quadruped move around the world? Um, how does it adapt to dealing with different obstacles and so forth? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the field is called artificial intelligence, and you would hope that it would draw a lot of inspiration from natural intelligence. The reality is right now, I think the field is dominated by mathematicians and physicists and so physicists and so forth, who are impressed with certain mathematical properties. But in principle, I think there's lots of things in the animal world that are super impressive. Absolutely. You can look at creatures that are like totally different from us, like the octopus has a much more kind of distributed mind where, you know, the different limbs operate independently. And you could ask, you know, how, what can I learn from that to bring into my AI systems? And some people do that. I don't think it's as popular as before because there are these tools right now that allow people to learn from big data. And that's kind of taking center stage. Right. But if you look at the history of AI, certainly people have looked at, at different creatures and how they, they go about the world. And I think we, we should continue to do that in AI. I think it's a very almost like a narcissistic endeavor. You know, we're humans and we're trying to recreate our so-called, you know, intelligence and the modeled after ourselves. Whereas, I mean, there are other animals that have <laughs> way greater abilities. I mean, ultimately, a, the best AI is going to be one that integrates all of the best things from all of these other animals. That's right. And, and some things that we don't find in any animal. So mm -hmm. all of biological life is trying to solve certain problems. So right. 
biological life probably is going to be more aggressive than you would like your AI system to be, for example. Okay, so with that in mind, um, when you talk about big data and and AI, um, a lot of natural systems, like systems in nature, are, you know, just perfectly enclosed systems that work really, really well. Is there any... Is there any use of that kind of, because, you know, uh, using big data to look at those systems and then pull that in, just in terms of a system, an enclosed system itself? Um, I think the problem is actually the opposite in a way, although maybe I'm riffing on what you say, but um, where AI works right now is in tightly enclosed systems like Go, where the rules are fixed, they haven't changed in 2,500 years, you can simulate what's going on perfectly. And what's amazing about the animals, maybe to almost invert your question, is they can deal with worlds that change pretty rapidly. You have to deal with a kind of light that you've never seen, or you're a deer and you have to deal with cars, and there weren't any cars in the environment of of evolution. Um, so there, there are lots of just situations where humans in particular are very resourceful about dealing with situations like sitting in a room with green walls talking to strangers about you know obscure things or whatever like <laughs> this is not part of what happened in the environment of, of adaptation it's cognitive flexibility um, that we so have. it's the cognitive flexibility that we have when we go out of this regime of in- uh, encapsulated rules that are well understood and enormous amounts of data. That's what's really interesting to me about natural intelligence, where I think we could learn for artificial intelligence. And I don't think the goal of artificial intelligence is to copy humans by any stretch of the imagination or even okay. other animals. It's to make machines that can actually reason and, and um, you know deal with unusual situations. But humans are good at that. Here's so the question. I mean, well, first of all, why? And second of all, what, what why do we, we want to build systems like that? Yeah, I mean, it's I guess the question the, we haven't talked about. Yeah, today. I mean, why do we have this? M- drive to do that. That's one part of it. And the other is, what is going to be left that makes us uniquely human? And I get asked this a lot. You know, is it our creativity? Is it the cognitive flexibility? I think, no, I think ultimately we'll be able to make them more flexible to different environments. So what will distinguish us so first, let me let me go let me go to your first one yeah. first. So why would we want to build smarter AI systems at all? Um, and you can legitimately ask that question because there are going to be some cost to it, like employment mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, Absolutely. For me, the answer is really about medicine and technology. That there are things that we don't know how to do ourselves, especially because biology is so tricky. So you have like thousands or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of molecules interacting, human beings can't really evaluate that all. So when we do drug discovery, it's such a like tedious process, and we don't really have principles that we're following. You know, we have a little bit, but we, we can't, in our heads, simulate all that's going to go on when you try a new drug or something like that. Computers, in principle, are very well simulated to do, uh, situated yes. to do that sort of simulation, mm-hmm. um, but we don't understand the causal principles that well. We want the AI systems to be able to read, ultimately, to read the scientific literature, come up with hypotheses for themselves, and be able to evaluate them against the literature instead of evaluating them against live human beings. I mean, this is a very crude way we have test, testing drugs as we try them out on human beings. If you could really do it on simulation with machines basically pit, putting together the theories, that would be fantastic. It would completely change the face of medicine. So that's, I think that's one of the reasons to do AI. Um, we can talk about some others in terms of like you know better technology for energy and so forth. That's a reason to do it. And then there's a cost, which is like, what are we going to do for a living when machines are so smart that they that's can do That's the sort of, of what what's left do. over for us. What's going to make humans... I, th- I actually think of Burning Man. I don't know if you, either of you have ever been there, that's, but... I, I mean, I would think of Burning Man too, of course. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. The thing, thing about Burning Man is that it's... Um, 
what do they call it, a gift economy. So there's no money there except in very limited ways. Um, people have to find their own meaning. And they don't find their own meaning because they're smarter than their other people or whatever. They're creative and they, they, they enjoy what they do and, they, and they, you know, they find an art to follow or something like that. We may move to a world where there's basically enough money for everything because things become cheaper, because the technology becomes better. So almost everything can be you know, 3D printed at your home. The materials don't really cost anything. We don't have to worry about transportation and shipping. It's like a totally different world um, than we live in now. And finances really aren't that part, much a part of it. But on the other hand, you don't have a job because there's nothing that you can do really that a machine couldn't. Well, you but wait a minute. The flip, the, 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 the flip of that is you do have a job because everybody will have the opportunity to pursue what they are uniquely suited to pursue. Mm-hmm. You, know, you won't get uh, paid for it. They'll do no, it you for won't. the love you'll of it. No, you will do it for the love of it is what that's, I'm saying. That's it's why like, I'm that's... talking to you about Burning Man, my friend, uh, because okay. that's what happens well, with Burning Man. People do their thing without getting paid. Have uh, ultimate self-fulfillment and reach our, you know, highest potential and all of that. But the thing what we still will have, in other words, of saying is that, that, that they won't have is is feeling, is emotion. is sens- Machines won't. No, we will have that. We will have that, that they won't. I don't... Right. Yeah, we'll... I mean, that's we'll true. Have, I mean, like, why, there will be, like, uh, synthetic TV or something like that where... You know, television programs get crafted by machines that understand the psychology of human emotions, and you know, yeah, that's called know to have three acts. <laughs> it's already happening. It's called Netflix. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. One. Why not? Come on, Gary. You know it's true. It will be appearing next week. It, on it would Netflix. not be surprising if some of the major networks were trying to figure out how to build AI systems to make you know more appealing television, and it would not be surprising if eventually they succeed at that. I think right now the natural language understanding and natural language generation is good enough to do it very well but okay. you know 100 years from now 200 years from now 500 years from now of course these things are going to get to we don't kill good. ourselves first with this human aggression or with climate change did you hear me I little rocket talking man about our president <laughs> <laughs> all right let's move on that was a fantastic answer thank you guys um <clears throat> here we go uh, 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 um sorry guys uh eric eric s Engineer Eric on Twitter says this. um, Brains, are there any protocols in place to lawfully and morally deal with true general AI? So... I don't know what true general AI is. I guess what they're asking. Are there any protocols in place to to lawfully and morally? So are we putting laws on the books? And is there a code of ethics attached to um, the development of... I don't know when this is going to air, but relative to when we are talking right now, a couple of days ago, uh, Saudi Arabia decided to make this uh, synthetic intelligence Sophia a citizen. And so she automatically, presumably, inherits all of the you know the laws and regulations. She could um, even drive at this point. Well, there's already been controversy about this. So can she drive? Does she have to wear a veil? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are annoyed that that you know most women are not accorded these rights. That maybe she is. And I mean, it's a very interesting controversy that that has just launched um, and has not played itself out. But anyway, one theory about these things is you have some qualification procedure, and if you decide the machine is intelligent enough. 
and maybe by some measure Sophia already meets that criteria, then you accord it the rights and responsibilities of a human being. Well, I think the most important question I still keep coming back to is whether it can feel, whether it can feel pain or not. Because, you know, the analogy is you have your... You don't really want to make that your criteria. Well, what, yes. What about a human being that had some kind of genetic anomaly and couldn't... Well, and I mean, what I mean feel, not just pain, but it can experience, is, is consciously aware, can not just feel pain. Feeling emotions. Feeling emotion, uh, feeling pleasure, feeling, period. Because, no, if you now... With feeling comes compassion, empathy, and... Well, you know, I I mean, like, right now, if your refrigerator, you can kick it, it's not going to feel anything, it's okay to do it. But if it could feel something, then it would be unethical to to kick kick it, right? I, you know, I I had once met with the, you know, heads of Google, you know, Larry Page and Sergey, and they were talking about AI a lot. And my one question was, well, would it be conscious, you know? And they said, we don't care whether it's conscious or not. I remember I was shocked by that answer. I'm shocked right now. You really care about creating better AI and whatnot, but whether it's conscious or not is irrelevant. And to me, that's the most relevant question because that determines how we have to treat these things ethically. Are you allowed to unplug it? Well, if it has the experience of feeling and living and... It doesn't want to die. doesn't want to die. Yes, then maybe, you know... Your remarks will be quoted about 400 years from now when some very smart AI mm-hmm. it does not consider itself to be conscious, feels that you are oppressing it and treating it... You that it feels slave. something. Once it feels, then it has a sensation. Uh, sorry, I, I, I should okay. be more careful. It, it is going to evaluate various ideas um, mm-hmm. and say that this one has plausibility. The plausibility is that that uh, robots are being treated like slaves based on a kind of arbitrary and difficult thing to pin down. That humans struggled for millennia to come. It'll up be a logical with argument answers. why we they should this logical argument and say, look, you know, lacking any better criteria for feeling or consciousness or some objective conscious meter or whatever, you're just using this to crush us robots. Justin is entitled to rights as as you are, and you just made up this thing. You can't even prove it. It's not objective. I think second class Sophia feels that way right now. (laughs) She'll she'll talk your ear off about it. Once this AI can express this, then maybe we should reconsider. I mean, it's this classic Turing test. You know, I don't know that you're conscious. I assume that you are because you act like you are, and I know that I am, but I'll never know. Until we know for sure, we'll never know but if it can articulate that, you know, maybe we'll have to think about giving it some some rights. And I think we're going to have to tackle these That's ethical my point, questions is, as is, we go. Is that that articulation might actually be more more relevant in the decisions that get made than consciousness, which is so hard to pin down. All I say is shut up, Sophia, and make me a sandwich. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be chatting with you about your attitude towards women and bots in the, after this break. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. One quick last question. Um, right now, this is Scatterbrained coming to us from uh, Twitter. It says this. What is the most advanced AI that's currently available to the public? What about the best one that isn't? So what is what is available to us in the best form of AI? And what is the best form of AI that is not available to us in, in your estimation? None of it's worth getting so excited about. I mean, you know, like... <laughs> Alpha Go Zero is amazing if you want to play Go, but it's not a general purpose tool. Gotcha. Um, you know, there's better driverless car algorithms in, in various companies than are available to you, but you shouldn't mess with them yet because they're not reliable enough um, for you to use full time. There, there's nothing that's like being held back in the big corporate labs that you actually as a consumer really need right now because none of it is really there yet. We're still in a development phase. Well, there you go, scattered brain. The answer is nothing. <laughs> is nothing, 
nothing good is out there. (laughs) What I'd like to see, what I'd like to see, I mean, I want them to evolve in a way that's going to, for me, the cognitive enhancement is is really interesting, is that merging of them with us. So it's not us against them, but it's utilizing the AI to increase our cognitive capacities and somehow merging with them. That's what we sort of haven't seen yet, which I would like to see. Wow. In which we will eventually see, I think. Cool. Well, yes, that's it for this episode of Star Talk All Stars. Big thanks to my co-host Chuck Nice. This was so much fun. And thank you, Gary Marcus, for dropping in. Thanks for having me back. I've been your host, Heather Berlin. Until next time, stay conscious. 